Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Stockstad with University of Minnesota Extension. And I'm Dave Noli with the Minnesota Logger Education Program. We're back today with another podcast episode, and today we're going to be discussing the stream and wetland crossing guidelines. And joining us today as our guest is David Demmer from the Minnesota Board of Soil and Water Resources. So thank you so much for joining us today, David. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, David, I'm going to jump in here with the first question, and I'm I'm still learning here and understanding that the guidelines tell us that we have to uh, that we need to limit stream wetland crossings. And can you just give us a little bit of an overview why that's important? Sure. Uh, wetlands play a, a lot of functions in watershed health, and among them are things like beyond wild wildlife habitat, but stormwater attenuation. Um, floodwater um, attenuation. Uh, there's chemical processes happening with soils that have been saturated for prolonged periods. Um, there's lots of functions, especially considering different places along the watershed where a wetlands function is really helping uh, the watershed itself function. Uh, so with those functions in mind, uh, laws have been set up uh, in Minnesota for both wetlands and public waters, uh, water courses to protect wetlands where they can. Uh, and then recognizing the fact that human activities do interact with wetlands and watersheds, um, the regulations set up uh, some kind of guidelines to follow to allow those uses, but still try to maintain the wetlands natural functions as much as possible. I think that's a really good overview and um, yeah, wetlands are you know classified as sensitive features and it's all about minimizing our impact at crossings of these wetlands as much as we can. And I know a common problem um, is that occurs at these crossings is rutting. So could you maybe tell us a little bit more about what type of issues rutting causes and how operators can best avoid rutting at these wetland and stream crossings? Right. I mean, just due to the nature that wetlands are these areas that have um, either groundwater to the surface or shallow groundwater or surface water itself, uh, wetlands are saturated soil conditions. And those saturated soil conditions contribute a lot to those overall functions that I just spoke to. So when there's activity in a wetland area that com compacts and ruts, uh, uh, wetland, and I do use those both, you know, at, at the, the same because it's not just the rutting, but it's also the compaction that ultimately can alter uh, landscape. And in a way that, um, you know, rutting encourages sedimentation, right? It releases sediment into the system that otherwise probably wouldn't have been. Um, but also, too, in extreme cases, and especially in areas that are being intensely logged or just intense activity, uh, the cumulative effect of rutting going back and forth over a single basin um, can actually alter the surficial hydrology. So it actually can change how that wetland is um, allowing the water to flow through it. And especially in certain uh, wetlands, such as floodplain wetlands, or even sloped forested wetlands, uh, that can ultimately have a cumulative effect on uh, how the wetland functions and degrade uh, the watershed, whether it's the water quality or um, its ability to function at some of its core hydrologic functions. 
So it sounds like uh, a lot of factors at play that uh, the operator may need to be you know, planning in advance, uh, recognizing what's uh, what's coming, uh, what what the operator is going to encounter at that crossing, or maybe even needing to adapt that crossing after they've uh, made a crossing or two and realizing that uh, that their crossing that they're using is perhaps the the not the most important. Um, <clears throat> So there's a lot of different crossing structures that they can use. The guidelines has a whole laundry list of them. Let's say they need to cross the stream. Uh, which ones uh, which ones kind of come to the surface, if you will, of um, popular or best suited for a variety of encounters? Yeah, great question. I, I think there's a couple components to it. Uh, there's one, this the crossing of the stream itself, right? Um, and a lot of the big factors in my mind, at least, and I think the guidelines kind of follow that. It has a lot to do with one, how large that channel is, how deep those banks are, and how permanent of a flow it has going through it. There's approaches for each of those considerations, right? Going from a temporary bridge to a temporary culvert to a temporary ford. Uh, the latter, right? Temporary ford being those circumstances that are most appropriate for those ephemeral drainages that don't have deep stream banks that can be pretty safely crossed, especially in the dry season. Uh, that kind of just works up then in terms of which is the best approach based off the size of the stream, the depth of the, um, the, the stream bank. And so you kind of walk your way up into whether or not a temporary culvert is appropriate or a temporary bridge, uh, depending for those large channels. Uh, the key here for any stream crossing is that there are potentially regulatory implications for that. Uh, for example, uh, if it's public waters, uh, the DNR administers that program and has a lot of guidance out there uh, for whether or not that activity would require public work, waters work permit. Uh, don't forget about the core either, the federal side of things. Uh, if that waterway is under the under considered waters of the U.S. under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, the core might be involved with that. In terms of approaching the actual stream, there's oftentimes also wetlands involved, right? Especially at the fringes. And in my experience, uh, some of the most successful crossings that have the, had the least impact uh, usually involve some sort of timber mat matting to get there. Um, the, other, the other pretty common scenario is approaching these systems, approaching these crossings during frozen soil conditions too. Yeah, and I was just going to say, so when you say, you know, operating on frozen soil conditions, I know that over 50% of timber harvesting in the state occurs during the winter. And so could you maybe just give a little bit more detail about why we should be, like why in certain cases we should be operating in the winter instead yep. of during the summer? Absolutely, especially for our wetland plant communities that are logged. Uh, it's a really good management practice to approach these systems under soil frozen under frozen soil conditions. The main benefit is is that when you have frozen ground in an area that is either permanently or semi permanently saturated, uh, being frozen will allow that equipment to travel over without changing the soil structure. Uh, especially if you're talking about organics, organics will compact very easily. Uh, that kind of goes against the the it's a Ability to be able to want to accumulate because that's essentially what organics are tending to want to do naturally is just simply accumulate. So when you compact it, you kind of reverse course on that. Um, <clears throat> and of course, it takes away the opportunity for rutting or significant rutting or deep rutting um, if you're approaching it under soil, frozen soil conditions. Well, David, uh, certainly a lot to a uh, lot to digest, a lot to um, 
to understand here and a good uh, good setup for our upcoming FMG trainings. Uh, thanks for giving us a great summary of how to avoid negative impacts during stream and wetland crossings. Uh, and it's a segue for us into our next episode where we'll be talking about riparian management zones, RMZs, and filter strips. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, David. And for our listeners, yeah, stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks so much.